0: Hello and welcome, belatedly, to the 33 Rides podcast, the show that's all about trains, bicycles, sustainable travel and adventure. I'm Edward Ginocchio and coming up in this special episode we have part one of our interview with Anna Hughes, the director of of Flight Free UK. That's coming up in just a moment, and don't worry, I won't keep you waiting for long. But before we bring you the interview, a quick explanation. Our interview with Anna was actually recorded back in March. So if you're wondering about the reference to snow melting in the garden, well, there's your answer. Now, what has taken us so long Well, as those of you who follow us on Twitter, and you'll find us there on Elon Musk's playground at 33Rides, as those of you who follow us on Twitter will know, we have been busy travelling the roads and railways, and to some extent the seaways of Europe, for the 33Rides project, our mission to visit all the railway-connected countries of Europe in a single trip. Travelling only by carbon-friendly means. Train, ferry and, of course, our trusty Brompton folding bicycles. And we'll be sharing lots of details of that soon via YouTube, Twitter and our blog. And indeed, of course, in future episodes of this podcast where you'll hear all about this. And this. And this. And this. And possibly even this. Keep track of it all via our website at 33rides.com. We have some stories to tell, as you might imagine. But now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the main event, the moment you've all been waiting for, it's time for part one of our conversation with Anna Hughes. So sit down, buckle up and enjoy the ride. So, the 33 Rides podcast is all about bicycles, trains sustainable travel and adventure. And who better to welcome as our very first special guest than Anna Hughes, Director of Flight Free UK. So welcome, Anna, and thank you for agreeing to take the 33 Rides podcast plunge with us and to be our podcast guinea pig.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me, Edward. It's great to be on.
0: Now, Anna, I've got approximately... A million things that I would like to ask you but we've probably only got time for half of them. But before we dive in, introductions. Now I'm sure you probably know about the what three words concept.
1: Oh yes I do, yeah.
0: It's a system which allows you to identify any location on the planet using just three words. So for example, here's one I tried earlier. The three words, flight free today, actually takes you to the middle of a rather muddy looking field in the parish of Compton and Shawford, which is somewhere in Hampshire.
1: Wow, what a cool idea. I'd never thought of doing that. That's brilliant.
0: (laughs) In a similar vein. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed yourself, because you are a veteran podcaster and media star... Uh, guests on podcasts and on radio talk shows these days almost always find themselves introduced with at least three words or phrases. Now, in the old days, it might have been enough simply to be a, a barrister or a beekeeper or maybe even a bishop. But nowadays, everyone has to have at least three jobs. For example, you'll hear people saying, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Prime Minister, Olympic Gold Medalist, and winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Josephine Dunnitall, or farmer, astronaut, and amateur sword swallower sword swallower, Hank Bustergut. So Anna, what three words or phrases should I use to introduce you?
1: Wow, what a brilliant idea for an introduction. I love it. I'm going to choose boats, bikes and books. Oh, and they all begin with B. Isn't that great? Isn't that great alliteration? So, I live on a boat, I ride bikes, and I write books. How about that?
0: Excellent. That is fantastic. Spontaneous <laughs> alliteration. So, let me get that straight. Boats, books, and bikes. Is that right? Uh,
1: that's the one, Yep. Yeah. Any order. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about order, actually, because... I was looking at your website a little bit earlier on and I see that you are following correctly the three word rule on your website where you describe yourself as author, environmental campaigner and cyclist in that order. So I was curious to know actually whether the order of those three jobs as you've listed on your website is significant.
1: Maybe. I mean, I definitely don't see myself as an author first, even though I am an author. I've had three books published. I'm very lucky to have that. Um, But yeah, that's definitely not my main thing. Maybe that's the thing I would that I aspire to be. But my main thing is that I'm an environmental campaigner. Um, A lot of the time I say I I include flight free adventurer in that list.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would like to talk about Anna, the author. And Anna the cyclist a bit later on but let's start with, with the one that you've identified as your first and foremost if you like. Anna the environmental campaigner. Talking of environment maybe before we dive in we should set the scene for our listeners. So I'm recording this in my home here in Birmingham and I'm looking out of the window and I can see the The remnants of last night's snow melting fast and turning my garden into a bit of a muddy swamp. So, Anna, where are you today? And what, if anything, can you see out of your window?
1: So, I live on a narrowboat. I'm moored in the lovely Hertfordshire town of Ware. That's W-A-R-E. Many, many jokes about Ware. You live where? Yes um so it's a yeah it's a beautiful place it's the river lee which goes all the way from hartford down to limehouse in london and i'm an itinerant boat person so i don't have a mooring which means i move up and down the lee the whole time which really suits me i live off grid i love that i generate all my electricity through a solar panel which is just such a simple way to live i and it really suits me um out of the window at the moment the towpath is covered in puddles. It's quite quite swampy as well. Um, the river itself is quite high at the moment because of the rainfall of the last week. There are coots and swans swimming along <laughs> and a few other boats. It's lovely and peaceful.
0: Now, Anna, you're the director of Flight Free UK, a charity which, according to the Charity Commission website, is dedicated to. Promoting and increasing individual and collective knowledge of the contribution of aviation to climate change and promoting alternative means of low carbon transport with the aim of helping to mitigate the harmful effects of greenhouse gas emissions upon the environment. Now that is quite a lot for my little brain to digest in one go. So Anna, can you get us started by telling me a bit more about what that means?
1: Yeah, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? And quite a high concept to describe what we do. Simply, in simple terms, we encourage people to travel without flying. So that is kind of the summary of Flight Free UK's work. There are a few different aspects to our work. We give information so we're a public education charity we give information about the climate impact of flights and we inspire people to travel by other means and that's by giving inf- um, information about how to travel with, uh, without flying and also by sharing the stories of people who have done it who frequently travel without flying demonstrating that you can get to lots of exotic exciting places with uh, in a low carbon way Um, We're a behaviour change charity, so we run a challenge for people to take a year off flying. That's our main method of behaviour change, and that's kind of the main focus of our campaigns. Generally about encouraging people to fly less or to travel without flying, and we do that by challenging people to take a year off flying.
0: So that's the flight-free pledge, is that right?
1: That's correct, yeah, yeah.
0: How long has that been running for, and how many people have you got signed up so far, this year, or whenever you started counting?
1: So we launched in 2019. And each year we run a new pledge. So it's just for the calendar year. Um, Since we started, we've had over 10,000 people sign up. Yeah, it feels like people are quite inspired by our campaign to make changes in their lives, which is wonderful. Um, So far this year, we've had nearly 3000 people sign up. So um, if you want to make a pledge or take the flight free challenge, then it's just you go to our website, flightfree.co.uk and you can sign up there. So, um yeah, we we're hoping to reach 5000, 10,000 people this year. So, yeah, that's the aim.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's on my to do list for next week. Anna, you think that people should fly less or maybe even not at all. Now, Is that purely because flying is bad for the climate or are there other reasons in your mind
1: well the main fundamental reason is of course the climate so yes flying is the most highly polluting form of transport and if we are to address the climate crisis in the appropriate way we've been told that we need to halve our emissions in the next decade then we can't continue to fly at the rate we do It's just simply, we're never going to reach net zero, our net zero targets, uh, whatever you think about net zero, you know, uh, but we're never going to get to that point where our emissions are low enough to avoid catastrophic climate breakdown, which we're already seeing, by the way, and if, if we continue with our high carbon lifestyles, and a big, big chunk of that is flying. So not everybody flies, but those who do, it's very likely that those flights will create The biggest portion of your personal carbon emissions. So, number one, if you decide not to fly or if you decide to drastically cut the amount you fly, you can make a huge, huge difference to your share of emissions. And if lots and lots of people do that together, of course, collectively we'll bring our emissions down quickly. But the other side of it is that when you look into the other ways you can travel, actually it's also really good for you as a traveler. So yes, flights are amazing. It's an incredible technology. It's given us this way to see the whole world very quickly. But if you slow down and try the low carbon way of traveling, you can still get pretty far. So you can still have your beach holiday, your ski holiday, your whatever type of holiday. But the journey becomes part of it. And it's not as stressful as being in an airport, it's not a. It, the time you're spending traveling is much better used. So, for example, if you're sitting on a train for eight hours, that might sound quite a long time, but you can work for the whole time. So you could even not even take that as holiday. You could have that as a working from train day, <laughs> and then um, you're you've arrived in your destination straight into the center of the city that you're heading to, rather than having to get a transfer from the airport. So. And it's very calming. Uh, it's very enriching. So the act of slow travel and and low carbon travel is really beneficial to us as travellers, as well as to the planet.
0: Well, this is something which we're going to be exploring directly firsthand, I hope, in the months ahead as part of the 33 Rides uh, project. I, I wanted to pick up on something actually that you mentioned in your answer just now about the nature of the climate crisis. I think even you used the word cataclysm, which we're facing. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with these kinds of predictions of global turmoil and disaster which climate change is going to bring. I think that this actually can be quite hard to process or relate to on an emotional level even if we understand it on a rational or a scientific level, I guess we're not talking about one sudden cataclysmic event that goes bang and then everyone can say, there, that was it, it happened, that was the climate catastrophe. It's not like that, is it? It's it's more a story of gradual change, a little bit warmer every decade. It's, it's almost a, a classic example of, boiling the frog, isn't it (laughs) (laughs) you know the 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 frogs in this case being us human beings or every living being on the planet sitting there in the pan or the the pan being the planet uh, enjoying maybe the water feeling a little bit warmer and then a little bit warmer still and never quite feeling the need to jump out of the pot until it's too late and we find ourselves being boiled alive so what i wanted to ask you is obviously this is a subject which you are very passionate about Uh, you've dedicated yourself to working in this area what is your personal i mean personal vision of climate change or global warming does does it scare you at a, a visceral level what is it about this particular crisis or threat that made you decide to dedicate your time and energy to fighting it.
1: Yes, of course it scares me on a visceral level. It and it and it would do anybody, but that's the kind of feeling that you either turn into despair or into action. For me, it has been turning it into action. I have spent my whole life making decisions. Every decision I've ever made in my life has been governed by how to keep my impact on the planet as low as possible. So I know we'll be talking about bikes later. That is why I ride a bike. I mean, I ride a bike because I love it and because when I was at uni, it meant I didn't have to pay for the bus. But fundamentally, I ride a bike because it's the most simple, pollution-free way I can travel. Every other decision, what I wear, where I live, what I eat, is all with the environment in mind. Because once you understand the scale of what we're doing you can't help but want to do everything you can to stop it. So we're all waking up at at very different rates. I mean, I wish the government would wake up and actually do something, but it kind of hits everybody at different parts of their life. And for me, it's been a slow burn since childhood. I've always been environmentally aware. But as a young adult, watching a film, The Age of Stupid, which was kind of my moment of realisation, I think, and just seeing exactly what was happening across the world. And if you haven't seen The Age of Stupid, it came out in 2009, I think. Um, I would recommend it to everybody. It's a film starring the late, great Pete Postlethwaite, who acts as a man in the future, looking back on this time in our historical uh, lives, and asking why didn't we save ourselves when we had a chance. And I think that's the question that makes me want to dedicate my life to this we are knowingly destroying the planet that we depend on it just doesn't make any sense why are we doing that we are Mm. degrading the soil we are polluting our air and, and we know we're doing all of this and for me that is worth it just that is so motivating to be the counter voice there and to counteract that and to do absolutely everything in my personal life to to avoid that but also to encourage lots of other people to do the same which is why I write about it and speak about it and that's why I set up Flight for UK you know it's all very well me not saying I mean me saying I don't want to fly anymore and that's a decision I made 12 years ago and I haven't been on a plane since but actually what we need to do is for lots of people to be acting in this way so yeah that that's the motivation behind setting up the charity.
0: I guess that's the the key point isn't it that one person on their own or the decisions taken by one person on their own can't really have an impact what needs to happen is for many people to be persuaded and I suppose you must spend a lot of your time talking to people communicating persuading debating cajoling convincing now what techniques or tactics or maybe metaphors do you find are most effective for communicating your message about the importance and urgency of the climate change problem?
1: Yeah so first of all to you said there that we as individuals can't make a difference but of course we can and that's one of the things that we at Flight for UK try to communicate to people. You absolutely can make a difference. Sometimes your individual choices are the only thing you can do. You know, we, we like I, I, for example, I can't bring down Shell by myself, but I can choose not to buy their products, which is why I don't fly and which is why I don't drive a car. So it's our, our consumer choices absolutely have a lot of power. And sometimes that is all we have in terms of trying to empower people or encourage or cajole and everything else, it always has to be positive, but it has to be realistic. So we don't shy away from saying just how bad things are, but we then talk about what we can do about it. So it's th- the most powerful part of climate action, I think, is sharing stories and, and, and telling people stories and the way that someone might be inspired to try to fly less or to try other types of travel is by seeing that it's possible. And someone else did a did this amazing journey to Sicily and I had no idea you could get to Sicily without flying and maybe I'll try that. And oh my goodness, I tried it and wow, I'm never going to fly to Sicily again because that was incredible. So it's giving the information and giving the inspiration. And, and I mean, there are so many different things. A lot of it is habits so we act as those around us act if you're in a friendship group and all your friends fly then you wouldn't think twice about doing the same but if we get to the point where you're the only one still flying then maybe you would start to question that we desperately need the people in power to put measures in place to make low carbon choices accessible for everybody okay so that is things like taxing aviation because it's ridiculously cheap right now to fly and it shouldn't be that cheap so taxing aviation uh, using that money perhaps to subsidize the train travel so low carbon travel is cheaper because then of course more people would choose it um but simply giving information so when you buy a an item of food when you buy a packet of cigarettes it tells you what the health benefits or problems are Imagine if that information was printed on an airline ticket. When you buy this product, this is the amount of carbon that it's going to produce compared to, say, taking that that trip by train. And by the way, as a rough guide, if you're traveling in continental Europe, you can save 90 percent on your emissions by traveling by train. That is a huge amount. And that is the kind of reduction we need to be seeing if we are to avoid these climate tipping points that we're talking about. So all of those things together it's informing people about the reality persuading them that they should be doing something about the climate crisis but also facilitating that making it easy for them to make those choices whether that's through finance or through information or through uh, ease of booking or whatever so yeah so many things that we can do but um, yeah I suppose to kind of summarize my answer to that question it is about uh, I think my fundamental favoured method of inspiring people is through telling stories and through sharing sharing the, the stories of people other people who, who've taken this action.
0: Now if everybody in the UK listened to you, Anna, and stopped flying for one year, now obviously that would be bad news for pilots, but it but would it be good news for the climate? How big a slice of the uk's total carbon emissions is aviation responsible for
1: so aviation makes up eight percent of the uk's carbon emissions if Mm -hmm. so yeah if everybody stopped flying then yes we that would be how much it decreased by and actually that's about how much we need to be reducing our emissions year on year Um, it's i mean obviously we just had covid so yes everybody stopped flying for a couple of years um and that was a disaster that was disastrous for the industry and as you mentioned pilots not just pilots it's every person that's involved in the industry so it's not just as simple as everybody stopping flying overnight that's not what we're aiming for we're aiming to create a culture shift so that industry can keep up because if you just pull the rug then yes, lots of people will lose their jobs overnight and that's not what we want. We want the green economy to replace the current fossil fuel economy and and you can do that by people uh, c- people's consumer choices. So let's use veganism as an example. I mean, 10 years ago, if you told me McDonald's would have two plant burgers on their menu i would just laugh at you i mean what what (laughs) but of course they do subway burger king all of the main chains you know i walk into a restaurant now of any chain and they hand me a vegan menu they used to just look at me strange (laughs) when i asked what was vegan on the menu and now i have a choice and that is because people have demanded it and industry have responded and no one lost their job (laughs) you know they just started cooking different things that is the way to do it and there are certain ways that we can push that quickly but with replacing the fossil fuel industry with a green economy with low carbon transport all of the jobs in aviation are transferable to low carbon jobs and that will happen it, it in order for that to happen in a in an organic way that doesn't result in lots of redundancies comes from consumer choices driving it.
0: Now I'm interested in your personal choice to focus on flying in particular because obviously (laughs) as you've just said there are many areas of the UK economy or any economy uh, which account for a certain slice of carbon emissions. We could look at road transport, we could look at domestic heating, we could look at livestock farming, you've just alluded to through uh, your comments about uh, vegan burgers available at certain fast food outlets and so on. So what was it that drew you to campaigning specifically on the question of flying?
1: I think mainly because there are lots of people who already campaign on those other things. And it seemed that flights weren't talked about we are aware of the impact of driving we're aware of the impact of eating meat we're aware of the impact of our light bulbs but don't tell us to give up our holidays you know it's that it's the conversation that doesn't seem to want to be had so there there felt to be a gap there and especially the gap didn't make sense to me because without wishing to play one thing off against another I typically save around one ton of carbon by being vegan every year and that's brilliant a a vegan diet is the lowest impact diet you can have and it's frankly delicious I am very happy being vegan but if I were to fly even to Crete and back that journey would emit more carbon than I'd saved from being vegan for a whole year That seems to be a conversation that wasn't being had. People would do everything, it seems, to reduce their carbon emissions, but don't ask them to give up their flights. So, yeah, showing them that you can still go to Crete, it just takes a bit longer. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you don't have to give up your holidays. You just do them differently. That seemed to be a really Mm. important thing for me.
0: Now, a common objection, which I'm sure you... Here quite frequently and in fact you've alluded to it in one of your earlier answers is that broadly speaking the alternatives to flying at the moment at least tend to be much more expensive um now obviously there's a system problem there and you hinted about some of the uh, the reasons for that but i think until we fix that problem it's probably going to be difficult to lure very large numbers of people away from flying just on cost grounds. Now, this is perhaps a bit of a technical question, but can, can you help me understand why is it? What are the reasons for the fact that on average, traveling by train costs many more times than traveling the equivalent distance, uh, by plane?
1: a couple of things or quite a few things that contribute to this firstly there's no tax on aviation fuel and let that sink in for a minute because if you fill your car up at the pump 50 percent tax 50 percent, your pay is just tax like that and then to not tax aviation fuel the most polluting form of fuel doesn't make any sense the government could rescind that now but of course they're not going to So, number one, we need to urgently redress that balance and we need to tax aviation fuel. Um, But looking at it a little bit uh, more with a wider lens, if you are travelling, let's say to Sicily, I already used that as an example. From the UK, you'd be taking maybe three or four trains down to Sicily. You actually have to take a ferry across the Strait of Medina Uh, which is between Italy and Sicily, and the train goes onto the ferry. It's the most wild thing. Um, I would recommend it to anybody. Very adventurous way of traveling. Um, But of course, if you're doing that, you're then using three or four different operators, all of whom you're paying for, right? So instead of just paying for one flight, you are paying for three or four different types of transport to, to three or four different companies, probably. So naturally, it's going to be more expensive. Just, you know, simply because you are receiving the service of more than one company's product. Well, I suppose that's kind of fundamentally it. Flights shouldn't be so cheap. And yes, overland travel is, costs a bit more because of that reason. However, don't be fooled into thinking that flying is always cheaper, because on many occasions it's not. So I'll give you a real life example. Last year I went down to Lyon for a bike ride, uh, cycling to Milan across the Alps, which was wonderful. And I travelled down by train, of course. I took the ferry across the uh, channel, and then I took the train down to Lyon. And one of the this was a group bike ride, and one of the other people on the ride had flown there because he said it was cheaper, and I said, "How much?" was the flight he said I do 50 quid or whatever the flight was and I said but how much was your journey and we added it up including the transfers including however much you have to pay for your seat and all this kind of extra stuff and it cost him over 100 quid to get to Lyon and it had cost me 85 pounds from door to door and that is actually more common than you think if you are traveling by air you usually have to at least double the Uh, air ticket cost to get the journey cost and we forget that we think oh 20 quid to ibiza yes please not remembering that you have to get to the airport in the first place you're going to get a taxi when you get there and all this kind of stuff and and paying for your baggage and blah 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 and uh, so when you when it comes down to it the cost comparison isn't quite so different most of the journeys i've done recently have been equal to or cheaper than flying And um, we actually did a a study about this in the Guardian a few years ago. Now it was, and the article was called "We Don't Fly," and it doesn't cost the Earth. And every single example was cheaper than flying. And and I think you know it. It is a legitimate narrative, but it's sometimes a false narrative that it's cheaper to fly.
0: Now, Anna, I could happily talk about this subject all day, and you probably you probably do as well because it's your job but we must move on we we've spoken about flight free uk so that's anna the environmental campaigner but there we identified at the beginning there are at least two other annas anna the cyclist or maybe we can take it a bit broader than that and say anna the low carbon explorer and there's anna the author of course as well that was the one of your 3b's wasn't it their uh, books A question. Do you speak Swedish? Well, there, on that cliffhanger, we must leave it for part one of our conversation with Anna Hughes. But fear not, all will be revealed in part two, where we'll learn not only whether Anna speaks Swedish, but also all sorts of other goodies, including what does artificial intelligence think of Anna how Anna came to cycle up Mont Ventoux three times in a single day, and how Anna is going to get to Mallorca, the flight-free way. That's all coming up in episode two, which will be coming to a podcast place near you very soon. But for today, it remains only for me to say thank you, first of all, of course, to Anna... And secondly, to you, all our listeners, yes, you heard that right, listeners, I'm told that's what's known in grammatical circles as the optimistic plural. Thank you, all of you, for tuning in. And thirdly, a big thank you to my friends and colleagues at Sticky Technology for taking on many of my duties and responsibilities while I've been away working on the 33 rides project and finally of course a huge thank you to Catherine and the team at brompton bicycles for setting us up with our magnificent brompton folding bikes about which you'll be hearing much more in future episodes of the 33 rides podcast and indeed on our youtube channel soon too but for now from episode one of the 33 rides podcast the show that's all about trains bicycles sustainable travel and adventure it's goodbye